Hello, this is Clayton Vance. Welcome to another podcast, um, Timeless Homes. And today we're actually going to be talking about timeless cities, traditional towns. One of the, you know, the thing that spurred this whole project on in the first place was being a part of a, um, a, a redevelopment plan in a small little town that is one of the fastest growing communities in, in the nation right now, which is, it's next to Park City, um, Utah. And the it's it's difficult because one of the frequent frequent questions i get is why does all development that gets done pretty much suck some of it some of it is good most of it is just just as is everyone hates new growth let's just put it that way everyone hates growth right it's like oh new growth happening what does that mean if I say, oh, by the way, we're going to put in 600 new homes right next to where you live, which used to be a field, what do you think? <laughs> you just freak out because what you're looking at is, okay, there's going to be at least 600 more cars, probably 1,200 more cars, and possibly if they all have a kid that drives, that's um, 1,800 more cars that are going to be driving through your potential, your, your neighborhood, right? And, and so everyone freaks out about that, and rightfully so. And what we call those people, meaning us, are NIMBYs, not in my backyard. That's kind of the acronym that we've created for this type of mentality is not in my backyard, go develop somewhere else, but not here. And and that was not always the case. Back in the day, you know, hundreds of years ago, when everyone's settling the West, settling America, settling Australia, settling wherever they needed to settle, they were excited about growth because that meant more economic opportunities and prosperity for everybody. That meant everything is going to get better if we have more people come in. And there was a cultural, a building culture that was consistent so that everyone knew more or less what they were going to get when everyone came in. Now there's a consistent building culture that we know exactly what we're going to get when everyone comes in, but we don't like the result, right? And so we kick back against it. We no longer welcome it. We hate it. We... And, and uh, that is just par for the course virtually everywhere in the U.S. and other places that are growing at, at rates um, that, that you don't really like to see. Um, and so I forgot I needed to start recording my screen because we're going to be doing a few things on the screen today. It's going to be pretty important. Um, you go ahead and listen to this, but if you want to really participate, watch it on Timeless Homes or YouTube. And that way you can actually see the screen of what we're going to be talking about because what we're, one of the things that you have to have in order to achieve a traditional timeless, um, and not even traditional, if you want modernist houses, but you still want it in a, a situation that is, is, a, is a timeless neighborhood, um, you have to configure your um, developments in a way that make for timeless types of neighborhoods. Traditional towns is the only way to do it. Right now, um, a quick history on this that's going to be so basic that it won't cover anything. Um, if you're a, a planner or professional, you'd be like, hey, you left this out and this out and this out. It's like, I know. But fundamentally, here's what happened. Europe, everything's walled cities, right? Um, based on an old Roman development pattern called... Um, the, the Cardo and the Decumanus, which is more or less state and main. It's the center street and, and, and main street. It's these two north, south, east, east, west kind of primary axis streets. And then you have the forum, the, the center square right in the center. 
Over the next thousand, a few thousand years, right, a couple thousand years, as things develop through the Middle Ages, what happens is, is everything gets redone in a very organic, very organic sense. They wall the city for protection. Those walls also represent a uh, more than just protection. They represent kind of the sacred realm in which this is the this is where the urban or the good life or the the city, the the, the polis, the the civitas, right, is going to. Uh, allow you to flourish as a human being within these walls, and 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 through wars and battles and blah 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 blah, um, those had varying levels of success all over the planet, and then comes the Enlightenment. You know, 1700s, 1800s, America's discovered or the the New World, I should say, is discovered, and um, they implement the grid like a formal implementation of surveying the united states and all lands that will become the united states and that formal grid begins to really influence how things are done as the eastern seaboard was settled you have boston and you go to downtown boston and it's awesome because it feels very european and we love that type of that character we love that um visiting those those cities that have the richness of the streets that go every which way and you can get lost in and it's and it's just a wonderful experience and and boston's oldest downtown core has that and there's just a, a couple others that sort of resemble that in the in the u.s but most of most of the cities were were set up on some sort of grid and it's and it's funny because as you go further west all the development patterns happen later and later and later. And so once you get, you know, past the Mississippi, all the way, you know, California and all that type of stuff, you, you start seeing these giant mega blocks, um, especially those that were developed for 1940 and beyond that are, are just vehicular corridors with absolutely zero character whatsoever. And then you have within the block, these, these major blocks, houses. Just keep going with me here. You got to. I know this might get a little tedious, but this is really, really, really important um, because all the towns, mo- not all, most of the towns that were established that uh, Los Angeles and and Portland and Seattle and all these major cities were established in the you know mid eighteen hundreds, and they were all established. Uh, more importantly, before cars. And this is really, really, really important. Because if my shop is that way, wherever that way is, and I need to get there, I would prefer to get there as fast as I could, and I am bound to either walk or ride in a carriage or on a horse, those are my three options to get there. How am I going to configure if I'm a town planner or a developer or whatever and, and we're, we're laying out a town or we're collectively doing it, how am I going to lay out the lots so I can get from here to there faster? I'm going to do it so that the lots are narrow, right? I'm not going to make short or, or not very deep lots that are super, super wide, so all of my houses sit 200 feet away from each other. I'm going to put houses pretty much as close as I can, depending on the economic status of the person 
who can buy the land or purchase the land and how many houses they want to, or how big their house is. And, and so you have a downtown core that gets set up. The economy is very localized because there aren't transportation networks to get stuff in. And so every, so you have, everything is at a very small, small scale, um, bound by foot and, and horse and buggy and sometimes train, right? So the railroad is starting to come to, to, to make its way throughout the Western US. Think about most of the, t- you know, traditional towns. Think about where you vacation. I guarantee you, you aren't going to the Walmart in whatever town next to you to go vacation and just check out, how cool is this Walmart relative to the other Walmart? where I live or Costco or Home Depot or whatever it is. We go there for very specific reasons. We talked about that last time in terms of authenticity and that type of stuff. And it's, and it's part of just this economic system that we have going, but, but, but the places that we, that we still really want to preserve, we love, we cherish, we want to go feel some vibrancy downtown, some character, that type of stuff. Where is, where is that located? Where's the real character? Where is it? It's in towns that are set up, interestingly, on a grid. And, and, and a lot of times when I talk to people in the Western U.S., they, they hate the idea of the grid because it's so monotonous and static and boring. But it's not necessarily the grid that's the problem. The problem is what you put on the grid and the, the little Lego blocks that are the actual architecture, the houses that, that compose the street front of the grid. And that is where things go completely awry. And it's where and how you get vehicles from here to there. And whether or not streets are set up for people or whether or not they're set up for cars. So this is a really interesting point because this is something no one really thinks about. The consequences of setting out plots of land in development having to do with zoning that has nothing to do with the actual um, design of the house until it's too late. So before you can design a timeless house and traditional house or whatever, it actually starts with the development, which starts with the zoning. And right now, we as citizens, we have complete control over what we want to do with that stuff. It's just none of us are actually really smart enough to understand. And that's what we're trying to do here is to get all of us smart enough so we can understand what the consequences are of all of these different choices that we're making. Um, Because once lots are set up and we define all of the property boundaries and that type of stuff, and just as importantly, and maybe even more importantly, you get utilities in, sewer, water, power. It is incredibly difficult to rearrange these things. Like, incredibly difficult. Um, and the only way, the only way these things get rearranged is in a governmental system that none of us want. And that is a dictatorship where there's no property rights and the government owns everything and they can just bulldoze your house and just go. And none of us want that. And so once these things go in, in a democratic society where there are property rights and property ownership, it is virtually impossible to alter the street configuration. 
and lock configuration, utility configuration. Even in 1666, when when Christopher Wren, Sir Christopher Wren, after the London fire, was commissioned by London to do a uh, an ideal master plan of what London could be, none of it none of it was really implemented because all the property lines and utilities and everything were already there. And it's like, dude, no, we're not doing this. But in, in other places where the government actually had a little bit more power, a little bit more control, yeah, sayonara, person. We want to make something awesome. And so we're going to take your property, put a road here, and we're going to make the city really cool. And just where we live and how we live, we would never accept that as a, as a reasonable thing. Sure, if you've been evicted because of um, a government needing to widen the street, you were compensated for it. And what is that? That's some legal term. I can't even remember what it is now. Um, and, um, and and the government can still come in and, and take take your property, but it has to be a pretty dang justified reason. We can't just completely reconfigure streets and reconfigure subdivisions. And so... What I want to do is let's look at this. Let's look at the screen real fast. This is just Ithaca, New York. I just got this. I was just looking for something online that would be a reasonable example of, you know, an, uh, a historic uh, configuration of a traditional town um, that that is how things used to be done and how towns that we still go to and think are incredibly vibrant and stuff and be, and can be regenerated. Um, how they how they were done and how they are still done because there's three essential things in in more or less town configuration and all new development that needs to be considered when configuring lots and streets and that is proximity um sustainability and connectivity connectivity is is absolutely vital because we're going to get to a diagram that illustrates how new new suburban neighborhoods are not are not uh, connected at all, and and why we have the traffic problems that we have. We all hate traffic, but when we look at a development like this that's on the screen right now, that's just a grid, everyone would freak out and say, "No, that's not cute enough." For some reason, squiggly lines on a piece of paper that make cul-de-sacs and stuff on plan and in living in them, we love it, right? Why do we love it? I don't know why we love it, but we love it. And it's a great place to raise kids. Why is it a great place to raise kids? Because there's no traffic. Because if we're at the end of a cul-de-sac, there's only just a couple cars that come through there. So it's a super safe place and kids can go run around in the cul-de-sac. I grew up on those. I grew up in a cul-de-sac, uh, in, in a cul-de-sac when I was what third, fourth, fifth grade. And it was awesome. We could do exactly what the cul-de-sac is designed to do. Play in the street, ride our skateboards and our bikes with no traffic interference. Um, and, and though they have their merits, boy, they just aren't, they just aren't that sustainable because and we'll get to that. So look at the screen. Notice how all of the lots are very narrow, um, very narrow and deep. It's if I, and, and here's the point in terms of connectivity. This is absolutely important. If I live here, follow the red dot, and I want to get here, how do I get there? I can go this way, 
I can go this way, I can go this way, I can go this way, I can go this way, this way, this way, this way. I have so many options to be able to get from here to there in a, in a grid pattern that are all the exact same distance. And that type of connectivity um, distributes traffic in a manner that doesn't congest it. it. And it maximizes choice. Now, I think that is the absolutely most critical part of a good lot configuration and a good um, town and street configuration is that it maximizes choice. It maximizes your choice in terms of how to get to where you want to get to. It maximizes choice in terms of possible housing arrangements uh, and possible housing types. It maximizes um, places of business and where you can put business until it gets supplanted by big box stores and all this other stuff and Walmart, blah, 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 and the economics go to pot. But let's look at and draw out a, a standard subdivision that everyone is familiar with today. Okay, once again, if you're, if you're just um, listening to this, I'm sorry, but what I'm going to be drawing here is, is, a, is a street that, that probably goes off in, in some you know, curvy random direction, and, and then I'm going to put a subdivision within these, these major collector roads. So I have these, these major collector roads, and, and they connect at these, these intersections, and because of some sort of random engineering thing that your municipality will have, they'll say, well, you have to have a connection point at least here, here, and here, but they can't be any closer than this. But they, and so we've engineered the art out of city making, and we've turned it into a science. And when you, when you engineer the art out of it, you engineer the soul out of it, and that's problematic. And that's why most of the neighborhoods that, that, we, that, that are new feel pretty stale and stagnant and similar and it, the same exactly, you know, no matter where I go now in the country, it's the exact same thing. The only thing that changes is the landscape. And so McDonald's has become the McMansion, has become the McSuburb, has become the standardization across the whole planet. And that's what's scary is everything's going to be the exact same. And we are not the exact same. We're not the exact same people. We're not the exact same cultures. We're not the exact same anything. And, and we should have localized, um, just just things that make our place special so okay so i come in i build a i build a road a connection point here a connection point here a connection point here and a connection point here okay now i'm gonna start connecting these and put in some cul-de-sacs and put in some cul-de-sacs and um And this is how we're used to seeing these subdivisions get laid out within a contemporary s system. Sorry, the diagram's not incredibly brilliant, but it gets the point across. And it probably because it's not brilliant, it'll help get the point across even more. So now, if my house is, is here on this cul-de-sac, and here's my property, and there's a big box store right here and a big box store right here and here and here. And I want to get to this one. How do I get there? I can go that way or I can go that way. If I want to get over here, 
I can go that way or I can go that way. I've just limited I've just limited my choices dramatically. And so everybody who lives and and if you know what if that road didn't exist? Because the, there was some rule on, you know, this is the highway, blah, 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 and you can't do that. And, and, and traffic would get too dangerous if we had an exit right there. And this is a light, and this is a light, and you can't go out right there. And so now what? Now I have to go to a light to get across the street so I can go shopping. And so what I've done is I have just not maximized choice. I have just limited your choice in terms of how you can get to where you want to go. And not only that, I have also made this entire thing just because of the nature of, of development. All of these are more or less going to be the exact same lot size. And so we've set up what's called a monoculture, meaning the exact same thing. And that's why we say, oh, it's just a cookie cutter subdivision is because it is a cookie cutter subdivision, but it's not the cookie that's the, it's not the cookie cutter that's the problem. It's the cookie that's the problem. You put the wrong cookie and there's no variety in the cookie. The only variety seems to be how many garage doors it has on the front, right? Think about your house. That is most of you who are listening to this. That is your house. That's my house. And it shouldn't be this way. And so the, the problem is we've, we've minimized our choices. And because of the zoning in this particular area, which typically would only re, it would require, you know, X amount of square footage per lot, because of this would all be in a zone residential X and this would be in a zone residential commercial or not residential commercial, sorry, zone commercial, or this would be zone. And so we've segregated all of the uses in pockets where I am forced not to walk, but to drive, to drive wherever it is that I want to go. And even if we could walk, we still would drive and that's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with driving right? If I need to get from here to there pretty quick, that's cool. But what we have done is we have now eliminated the possibility of walking because none of these streets are actually configured for people. They're only configured for cars. They're designed for cars, not for people. And that's, and you can do streets in two ways. You can design them for people or design them for cars. And, and one is going to be the guest and one is going to be the, the, the primary, um, user. And if you design a street for cars rather than people, you will not find people on those streets except for the person who's too poor to have a car and you feel sorry for him, right? And, 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 and we think that this, this vehicle is the, the ultimate ends of, of existence. And it's like, no, 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 it isn't. We have, we have uh, just pushed aside anyone else who could possibly, meaning teenagers, and now we all have to, instead of having one car or two cars, now we have to have three or four or five cars, depending on how many teenagers you have at the same time, right? And then we have to have to, st we have to store those cars. And so we have to have lots configured in a way so we can maximize the size of our garage so we can put all of the cars on it, which then separates houses further and further apart. And then we are, we force everyone down on these collector roads. Okay. If we pull back that other diagram, you can see how that is not the case with this. 
when you set it up in a grid system or not even it doesn't have to be grid just as long as it's connected everything is connected and you 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 maximize that connectivity and you do not segregate the uses in such defined pockets like office parks and shopping parks and residential zones and then commercial zones they have to be integrated in in a manner that and give incentives to small businesses in areas where they can't compete it's just like a handicap in golf right <laughs> you give you give the person who really does have the disadvantage um, some sort of incentive that allows them to be able to play on a more level playing field if if you want those types of walkable really nice neighborhoods because the economy is such now that um small businesses just can't compete with the big the big dogs who sit up in the big the big box stores and how does this relate to houses that's what we're getting to how does this relate to houses next diagram um if i have a lot that's narrow and deep or I have a lot that's square, or I have a lot that's wide and shallow. The house that I can put on each of these lots is very, very different. And what we're focused on is very, very different. One of the things that you'll notice in this other diagram is how each of these lots are different sizes. I mean, check, check this out. We have small little lot, small little lot, small little lot. I'm, I need to highlight this in a brighter color so you can see it. Small little lot, small little, large lot, larger lot, small lot, narrow, narrow. So, and I'm looking at the widths. And so the variety of lot widths is, is incredibly um, different, which adds to the richness of the whole character of this core. But when developers come in and just do the exact same thing over and over and over and over and over again without varying up the lot types it gets incredibly static and monotonous and boring and that's one of the things that we hate we are trying to figure out how do we recreate and revitalize or or come up with a new development system and or pattern that actually has the same sort of character and and um richness that these old traditional towns have how do you do that because that doesn't happen even in new urbanism which i do like but i think there's still some significant issues with it it's that still doesn't happen really good because it's still incredibly static and the reason it's static is because the the lot configurations are such that you don't have the variety and the richness within a, a single block and i think i think that's one of the major problems so when we're looking at house design um, on a narrow lot if you're going to house a car a vehicle garage carriage horse or whatever you can look back at that or go pull up any historic map of any historic town and that garage is going to be you know back here it's going to be back here and it might be touching the property line it might be um adjacent to another garage it might something but it's going to be it's going to be pretty far in the back. We do not like that because we want to be able to go from the garage and take the groceries right into the kitchen or the pantry. And there and that is a legitimate request and and I and I totally get it. Oftentimes you'd have an alley back here. 
and then the street was dedicated to pedestrians. And so you could have a house up here, a house that was deeper, and um, and that's and that's how you'd configure your houses. And so the distance between these houses was um, at such a distance that the street wall was being formed by the facades of the houses. And so you would visualize or you would you would experience the house. This is important. You would experience the house from a single facade, from just the front, because the houses were put close enough together that that's how you experience them. Once you get into a wider lot configuration, that house becomes more like a villa or a state house or a chateau, something like that, that you would find on something of three acres and or more, a farm, that type of stuff. When you have a house configured, um, on a lot that has that much width and you experience the house as the pedestrian from at least three sides and possibly four sides, those houses were always designed in a manner that every single side was designed so that, you, so that your experience with the house was a four-sided experience. It was not just a single-sided experience. And so in an urban context, urban meaning um, uh, pretty dense, that type of stuff. And when we you know, break out the term density, everyone freaks out because density ne isn't necessarily the issue. Ugly and bad density is the issue. If you put density in and, and it's really unpleasant, that is the worst of all worlds. I don't want to call out LA, but I live there and I'm talking to you <laughs> because holy cow, I've driven on the 405 and that sucks, man, because everyone has to drive everywhere. When of all the places in the entire country, I mean, come on, Los Angeles, where is the best weather, the least amount of rain, the where you can pop, the only place on the planet in the U.S. anyway, in the U.S. where it's actually pleasant to walk from here to there is the whole Southern California area. And what did we design the whole thing for? We designed it for cars. My heavens. I live there. I know. I have a, anyway. Yeah, we designed it for cars, not people. We need to do better. Because one of the really interesting things, let's go, let's go back, let's digress just for a moment. In a uh, in a neighborhood like this, this this idea of sustainability is all the rage right now, right? Green building, sustainable, blah 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 blah. If if you're talking about sustainability without a uh, with, without also including a discussion of visual sustainability, I just want to call you out right now. This is completely hypocritical and disingenuous. Because if you're just building houses that are going to go out of style and out of trend or out of whatever in the next 15, 10, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, and you have to tear them down and redo them because they're so ugly, because they were cool at one point and now they're not cool anymore, it's, these are houses, not articles of clothing that you can go to the store and change out really easy. You know what I'm saying? This is, this is a built thing that takes a lot of energy input to build. So anyway, when we're talking about sustainability, you do need to be talking about visual sustainability within the conversation, which has to do with timeless design principles. 
And then on top of that, when we're looking at these lot configurations in this type of downtown uh, kind of historical configuration, just just look at it. What can this this lot be used for in the future? Who, a plethora of, I mean, tons of things. It could be used for all sorts of uses, residential, commercial, multifamily housing. Um, and same with this one and with this one. And then you can densify this block if you want to. You can densify this street. You can change. And so, yeah, you can tear down the building and put something new up and and reconfigure it all. So And, and so what that does is it allows, it, it, it permits you to put and use buildings and remodel buildings um, in a manner that they can be used for multiple things over their lifetime, which can be hundreds and hundreds of years. You don't design a building for this particular use in this particular place for this particular um, function for its lifetime, which will be 30 years, and that's what we do. But you can actually put in a building that can be used for multiple things over its entire lifespan, which can be hundreds of years. And and when you do it in, in this type of traditional town configuration, that's the glory about it. And that's why you want to design more timeless structures, particularly on that facade, that street face, rather than these really trendy things. If in this cul-de-sac um, scenario, what can this neighborhood be reconfigured to be used as? Virtually, I mean, nothing. It's, it's nothing. It, it is condemned to a single use indefinitely, and that is a residential use. You can't do anything with this without having to reconfigure um, all of the utility lines and the property lines and everything else to, to turn this into some sort of uh, connected, connected grid pattern. And that, what I just drew, will never happen because... Without being a dictator, you can't go in and just usurp everyone's um, properties. It just it just doesn't work. And so by doing these types of subdivisions, and you do tons of these subdivisions, you have just made a traffic nightmare and an unpleasant pedestrian experience forever. There's no way around this thing. That's why it's so, so important to get your lot configuration right when you're expanding and developing. Um, so back to this, back to this house. So the experience you have with these three houses, which are on narrow, deep lots, is primarily a facade experience unless this house is like on a corner. Then if that house is on a corner, what you've got is a two-sided experience. And if you're a designer or an architect and you are designing a house on a corner lot, you have to design two facades. You have to design it in a manner that you're considering it has two fronts, not a front and a side. And that is one of the biggest sins of, of most development and just standard subdivisions that I see is corner houses are never designed to actually have um, to, to recognize two um, street fronts. It doesn't have to have two front doors. What I'm talking about is the order and the actual design looks deliberate and composed on both street fronts. And what you're doing is you're telling the pedestrian walking by the house, hey, the person behind here who's living in here cares about the experience of you, the pedestrian walking down the street. They care about the experience of the public in the public realm. 
a complete disregard and denial of the public realm when you're when you have a street front facade that you've that you haven't designed or put any thought into is 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 indicative of our the general cultural phenomenon of how selfish we are as just a society. It's my property and I can do whatever the crap I want to with it, right? That's what we all think. It's like, yeah, really, we ought to do what's in the best, uh, what's the what's the best for the overall um, experience of everybody, both you and me, the public and the private. But we can talk about that another time. So the square lot, if particularly if it's large, if it's if it's a uh, if it's a estate lot, you're experiencing that from this side, this side, this side, and this side. Um, but let's look at this in terms of the same size of of lot that um, these other houses would be. And so now, because uh, of the of the garage situation, when we driveways cost money, and so. Typically, we do not want to, and this is just standard run-of-the-mill stuff, particularly if you're getting a house from a home builder, they're going to reduce costs as much as they can in order to maximize the profits. And so they're going to put as little driveway as they possibly can in there. So your garage is going to be faced forward as as far as possible as long as it it is legal. Because a, a driveway, a garage has to be typically 18 feet to 20 feet away from the, from, from a, a, a sidewalk, sidewalk face. Sorry about that. Um, because you, if you're parking a cart in front of a garage door, that's how, that's typical. How much space you need to leave is 18 to 20 feet in order to fit a car. So it's not interrupting the flow of the public, uh, traffic down that sidewalk. And so garage are typically set no closer to a street than 18 to 20 feet, unless it's on an alley and then it's right up against the alley on the back side. And and this is important this is important to know because developers will not deliberately will not deliberately uh, and home builders will not put that any further than 18 to 20 feet because of costs in order to maximize profits. And this is sad because if we as a public demanded that um, we wanted better um, a, a better pedestrian experience on our streets and we demanded that hey we want neighborhoods that look like this not a bunch of uh, car storage units then we might be getting it but because we haven't demanded that yet and there are no zoning that actually enforce and or require that in most new development in most new cities we don't get it and i don't think we should force everyone to do it but this is a bad thing and so do we have to force people to do it we might have to through zoning in order to put garages further back but then we want um more uh more backyard space. And so once again, it's our fault. And so now what we have is we have half of the lot that's dedicated to garage. Let me, let me reconfigure this. So it makes sense on the, if you're following this on the, on the diagram. And so we do a three car garage, which takes up half the lot. And then we have the house that takes up half right on a square type of lot. And this is pretty, pretty typical. And then on a wide lot, um, now we can fit, um, four cars, (laughs) or still three, but it's, it's still the same as, as a square lot, but the, the narrow deep lot, the narrow deep lot with the garage in the back is the only way to achieve a really nice, timeless neighborhood. 
It is. And and when I say narrow deep lot, if your lot is 200 feet wide, that lot should be 300, 400 feet deep. And that's an estate type of lot. And you can put that house all the way in the back. I mean, there's there are all sorts of crazy lot configurations and so many things that we could go out. And man, if someone wanted to go take a tour with me sometime, we could go out and and just go tour cities together because that is fun to do and just look at all these different lot configurations. I mean, what, what, where I started my career in one place was Haddonfield, New Jersey. If anyone's been to Haddonfield, New Jersey, you understand what a gem of a town that is. And that's a fascinating thing because it's very, very urban right on that main street. And then right as you cross the train uh, the, the train tracks that go into Philly, you, you get to some apartments right next to it and some pretty high density, either both housing and or offices right next to the, the primary downtown strip. And then it goes immediately down Kings Highway onto these enormous estate lots where the houses are sitting like 150, 200 feet deep. Go look on Google Earth or whatever and measure it and dimension it yourself because it is it is a fascinating study. And then you'll have these secondary streets that go off the primary street and, and they'll have much a, high, a higher density uh, experience. And, and it's that type of uh, push and pull and give and play that makes the rich, traditional, timeless neighborhoods timeless. It's not, and, and I don't know, I don't have an answer yet, but I will have an answer for developers and cities who are trying to figure out how to get out of this rut of monocultural, static, boring developments that every single lot is the exact same and every single house is the exact same because we are just killing our cities with this type of growth and this type of expansion it's not what we want we don't know it's not what we want but we but we we just need to understand and be more observant and increase kind of our architectural awareness but in the end Let's just go over this again. Traditional block configurations and traditional lot configurations. What does that do? It maximizes my choice. It maximizes my connectivity because of proximity. And it maximizes the sustainability of that particular neighborhood because of how many uses a building can be um, uh, repurposed for over its lifetime, which can be hundreds of years. And it integrates everything in such a manner that it, it adds to its richness over time. And that is an absolutely critical thing that if you, are, if you want to get involved in um, politics to help change where you live, um, like these development practices, so that when new big giant developments come in, it's, it's more of a city and town type of thing and they're creating town centers rather than these just giant suburban sprawl neighborhoods. Boy, yeah, I encourage you to get involved and and continue to, to listen here at Timeless Homes because we'll continue to discuss what what you can do to actually get the results that really are, in fact, timeless. So thanks for joining us today. That was a really brief overview of lot configurations and how important those are to make timeless homes. Um, but they are, and and we'll be covering these things in other blogs, other posts, other um, everything later. So join us again. This is Clayton Vance. See you, see you, see you later.